Good morning to you. Thank you. <laughs> Just allow us a moment to get ourselves organized here. Psalm 27 is uh, a well-known psalm. I imagine there'll be a number of verses that will be favorites for you, and uh, they certainly are for me. It's a psalm, I think, that is both a prayer that we could say and a lesson on prayer. More specifically, it's a, les a lesson, I think, on devotional prayer. There's such, um, such nourishment in it, in the way we pray, the way we approach God, the, the way God responds to our prayer and the way God is with us in our prayer. We're going to begin by hearing it um, all the way through. We won't touch on every verse while we look at it today, but Karen will read the whole psalm for us now. Psalm 27, a triumphant song of confidence. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and they'll fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek, that I will live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Uh oh. Sorry. Have you lost your place? Oops. Oops. Well, we won't need to talk about um, Jeff's guitar chord anymore. No. <laughs> You're redeemed, Jeff. <laughs> right, focus, everybody. Who's <laughs> <laughs> that? wife. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Come, my heart says. Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off and do not forsake me. O oh God of my salvation, 
If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Very good. Thank you. Does it sound very familiar? Is it a favourite psalm? It starts off vibrantly, doesn't it? We'll look at about half of it this morning, and I think the half that we look at will explain the bits that we don't look at. It starts on such a strong note, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There's no agreed date for the psalm, but commentators seem to agree that it's well into David's reign as king, and certainly within the time that he rules over the united Israel of both Judah and Israel. And it's quite possibly a psalm that he wrote in duress under a time of trial. So when he, when he writes in the second verse, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. It sounds tremendously assured, doesn't it? David is utterly confident and there's no problem too big. And yet he keeps going and in the third verse he really says exactly what he just said in the second verse. Do you see that? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. So you see, it's sort of a repeat. And if you look at the first verse, it actually says the same thing twice too. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And this is a, it's a very characteristic Hebrew um, literary device, I guess you might call it, a doublet sometimes called that, where the same thing's repeated twice. And you'll see that in lots of Old Testament writing. But it makes me wonder why David does that. Why does he say it twice? Who is he praying to? Who is he praying with? What's the circumstances around him? And I wonder, he could be praying with absolute surety and confidence. He could be almost literally what it says, beyond doubt that he will walk with God into victory in every situation. Or could he be perhaps praying this out loud in a crowded uh, meeting of God's people, either on the, on the battlefield or perhaps back at home in the tabernacle? Is he saying these words to encourage the people that are around him? Is it possible that he's saying these words to actually encourage his own heart? Is he possibly less sure of all these, these truths than we might think? One commentator suggests that he writes this psalm during the moment when he is in terrible, terrible conflict with his son Absalom. And so perhaps if that were true, if it were true, Perhaps he may be deeply afraid that he might lose everything. He might lose the kingship. 
he might lose his own life. Had he even, at the point of writing or praying this psalm, lost his way in some sense and was using the words to find his way back to faith in God. David, as you know, was a a, a passionate and God-loving person and the, the Psalms bear witness to that over and over again. But you see how there's various ways that this could be played out. Go back to, for a moment to the story of David and Goliath quite a number of years earlier. Generally, have we got Goliath? Where's Goliath? There he is. Generally, when we think of David and Goliath, we tell the story this way. Here's a young man, small, perhaps in build because he, he may only be 14 years old and he's the, the youngest of his brothers, do you remember? And they couldn't even find him when the prophet Samuel's asking where, the, where the, the, each successive offspring are. They couldn't find him, but when he comes... And shortly after that, he is face-to-face with this immense Philistine warrior who is nine feet tall by... That seems to be the popular number, a big, big, giant man. And we tend to think that what happens next is that God empowers David. David in his own strength is no match for this giant man, but God empowers David to win that battle. I think that's the usual way we tell the story. But there's another way to look at it as well. Because just prior to David taking on Goliath, he was anointed by Samuel, the prophet, as the, as the future king of Israel. That anointing, that act of anointing, meant that God's will was going to be expressed in, in David becoming king. So as the anointed king of Israel, he could not die. Do you see? He couldn't die because God had chosen him to do that role and that is what would happen. And so he, he approaches um, Goliath in the power of an indestructible life. I don't know that David understood that, but I can see it. Can you? He approaches Goliath with an indestructible life. That is exactly our situation, isn't it? I have an indestructible life. It doesn't look like that, does it? But I do. And the worst thing that can happen to me, perhaps, is that I do die. But death has no fear for us because there is life after death, isn't there? So we also, in our life of prayer before God, whether it's in our worship together here this morning or in our quiet devotional life at home, we stand before God with the words that David began the psalm with, the Lord is my light. But we might pray that at different ways at different times. It could be that we are making to God, a strong declaration of who we are and who he is. It could be that we are reminding ourselves of who he is and who we are. It could be that we are in public and we're we're together here and we're making a loud, joyful thanksgiving to God, thanking him for who we are and who he is. But it may also be a prayer that we say when we're overwhelmed because we're looking to these words to to bring us back to the point of life and truth that we know so well, but where is it gone? You know that feeling? One minute you're you're just so assured of God's faithfulness and then the day after that you're going, (gasps) it could be that prayer. It could be a pleading with God for deliverance. 
All of these things live in the words of that psalm and I think that's uh, the way we ought to take it. it. It speaks to us in so many different moments of life. The next verse, verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling and he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. I, um, I can remember the effect of this psalm on me as a young person. And this morning I, I want to tell you maybe more than a normal number of personal stories. That's not always the best way to speak, I think, but this is such a personal psalm that I can only, I can best illustrate it from my own life. Now, my story, my life isn't yours and you may or may not resonate with the things I say, but perhaps you will and I hope you will. When I was young, I remember this psalm having in it, the, to me as a young man, the promise of escape. Ah, oh, the one thing I want is that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Not, not in this crumbling down house that I live in now as a young man with no money. I want to live in the house of the Lord. I want to be special. I want a life that, that is purposeful and resonant with God's call and purpose. This sounded to me like an escape from the ordinary. And I didn't want to be ordinary. I wanted to be brave and courageous and called out by God to do something wonderful, me and him, just me and him, escape from the ordinary so that it would just be God and me and wouldn't that be superb? No longer young. You can tell I'm no young, longer young because of my, what does the Bible call it, a grey crown, something like that. It is a crown, you see, because... This bit here, there's nothing there. It's just round here, like a crown should be. <laughs> Except for this bit, I'm worried about that. I think the, I may have got the crown on backwards or something. <laughs> but in, in, my, in my older eyes, I look back at that young view and I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what intimacy with God is. This matters because the Psalms are, they're, they're a very fluid sort of a book in the Bible. Perhaps more than any other book, they appeal to things deep within us that are not our head and they stir longings and desires and emotions and praise and all sorts of stuff can well up. That's good, but I think it also needs to be carefully held so that we don't run amok. Do you remember um, these words of Jesus? He said in Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is Matthew chapter 6. So the instruction's quite clear. Jesus says, get up, 
I'm not allowed to walk around today because I haven't got the neat little microphone. I just have to sit here. I keep wanting to do something. Jesus says, walk, go, go away from people. In fact, go into your own room. Close the door. Speak to your father in secret. Don't be like those people who, who stand on the street corner and make a big song and dance about it. I want you to go by yourself in your room in secret. Uh-huh. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father. Now this, have you ever seen this? This strikes me as particularly odd. Jesus says, go by yourself. And the very first word is plural. And then right through the Lord's Prayer, eight times, it's in the plural tense. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. It's a contradiction to me that Jesus says, go by yourself, just you, shut the door, you and God, and then the prayer is plural. And the lesson in that, I think, is because when we're in Christ, we are never alone because we are part of the body of Christ, aren't we? There isn't. There isn't a wonderful secret life between me and God that shuts out everybody else and it's just me and God. That, that, that's, that's not it. That's not what the psalm says. As a young man, I thought it did. It appealed to me to leave behind all these annoying people who have no idea what God's really on about. I know, and I'm just going to be with God. A, a sentimental reading of this psalm I think, could actually lead you away from God. Perhaps you've had a a Christian friend who eventually disappeared from church into a very private relationship with God because nobody understood God the way they did. It's a tragic thing, but it happens, doesn't it? And so when the psalmist writes in verse 27, one thing I ask from the Lord, there's the singular, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I think that now is a a prayer of surrender to Christ to be part of his body. We are always, always part of the body of Christ. We're never on our own. There was um, an abbot in a monastery in the 6th century by the name of Dorotheus of Gaza. And Dorotheus said to his monks, who were apparently complaining about each other and grizzling, you know, there was a, um, there was a monk once who was in a, an order where you could only say two words every 10 years. That was the rule of Saint, I don't know, Saint Silent. And at the... At the end, and you you only got to say them to the abbot. And so at the end of um, the first decade of his life in the monastery, he went into the abbot and the abbot said, what would you like to say to me? What would he call him? My son, I suppose, wouldn't he? What would you like to say to me, my son? The abbot, of course, could talk as much as he liked. And the monk thought for a moment and he said, hard bed. And then... (laughs) The abbot blessed him and said, go go away, see you in a decade. He serves another decade in the monastery and he comes back and the abbot says, what would you like to say to me, my son? And the monk says, crook food. (laughs) And then the abbot says, bless you, see you in a decade. He comes back and 
30 years now. And the abbot says, what would you like to say? And the monk says, I quit. (laughs) And the abbot said to him, I am not surprised. For 30 years, you've done nothing but complain. (laughs) Now, I was thinking last night, I was thinking, will I tell that joke? And I decided not to tell it. (laughs) But then, (laughs) so, (laughs) because it has no connection to what we're talking about, (laughs) except that it involves a monk. So, the abbot, the abbot believed that the world is like a wheel. The human world is like a wheel. There's a wheel, which would have worked well if he was a sort of a flat earth type of person, wouldn't it? And in the middle of the wheel, this is what he told his monks who were complaining about each other, in the middle of the wheel is God. And on the edge of the wheel, we find ourselves. Are we all around the wheel? Yes. And then our desire is to move towards God. And finally, this is what he believed. There is, there is no way to move toward God without also drawing closer to people. And there's no way to approach people without also coming near to God. It's very simple, isn't it? But isn't it profoundly true? And so this is what's happening in the psalm when the psalmist says, one thing I desire is to be in the house of God. Our desire needs to be for the body of Christ and for one another. And it's a fundamental truth. It's not always easy to to hold to. And he talks about looking at what is beautiful. What is beautiful to God? Well, if you look to your left or right, you'll see what is beautiful to God. It's the person beside you. We are the body of Christ and and Christian life is that always. And although we have private devotion and I feel as though this psalm calls us so deeply towards that, even in our devotion, we are surrounded by what Hebrews 12 calls the the cloud of witnesses. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and we are always members of one another. It's a paradox, like Christian thinking is so often full of those things, but it's true. My desire to be with God in his temple is to be with you and you with me and us in him and he in us. Verse 8. I'll read verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, Lord, and be merciful and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Now, I learned this verse first in what has now become a footnote in the NIV. And the alternate reading in the NIV, I just think is beautiful. It says, to you, O my heart, he has said, seek my face. Your face, Lord. I will seek. I've always loved this. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful verse. What interests me, though, is that the first one that we read, my heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. In that one, it's my heart speaking to me about God, I think. But in the alternate reading, 
to you, O my heart, he has said, God is speaking to my heart. And then I say, your face, Lord, I will seek. And if you look at different versions, they continue to be all over the shop. The New King James says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. The um, Revised Standard Version says, come, my heart says, seek his face, your face, Lord, I do seek. Now, if we're not careful, we're going to just get lost in a sea of nomenclature. It's all about words and what does it all mean? But it's such a beautiful sentiment that I think right in the middle of this is something we need to grasp. There's confusion here about the heart. What soul, what spirit, what's heart, does heart speak to God? Does God speak to heart? And the same confusion that sort of seems to be bundled up in the different ways it's translated reflects a measure of confusion in myself and perhaps you as well. Because don't we wonder sometimes, how do we know if we're hearing God's voice? Who's ever had that wonder? All of us have had that wonder, I think. Is it really God or is it me? Haven't you wondered at times what soul and what spirit? And when the Bible uses the term heart, which it does endlessly, what does it mean? Is heart some part of my mind? Is heart my soul? What is a soul? What is a spirit? These are questions that are pretty difficult. And, and sometimes um, Christians come down very heavily on one part or another. Intriguingly, there's a long tradition in Christian writing going back, way, way back, maybe even to Dorotheus of Gaza, but I don't know. And they, many older Christians in times gone past, but, but not only, came to believe that the beating heart boom, 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 inside is actually the place where God speaks and where our spirit resides. Now, as, as odd as that sounds, I must say there's something in that that appeals to me because again and again, frequently, my heart or at least something round about here in my physical being rings like a bell with an awareness of God's presence. And I don't understand that all that easily and it doesn't fit into definition so easily. But when I read to you, O my heart, he has said, seek my face, your face, Lord, I will seek, that just holds me because it fits with my experience, which is a physical thing. When I was um, about, I don't know what age, but it, it could be 10 or 12, I had two, I learned two things at school that the teachers didn't teach me. One of them is trivial and one of them is profound. So I think we'll get rid of the trivial one first, shall we? We had a, a school inspector. Who remembers school inspectors? It was so scary. I, f I, at the age of, I think, eight or nine, this is younger than the 10 or 11 one, I thought that the school inspector was there to inspect me. Not, I didn't understand that he was in there to inspect the school and specifically the teacher. I thought he was inspecting me and I was terrified because he was this strange man in a suit and he gave us a test to do and I, I couldn't even understand it. I was just 
hopeless. I couldn't understand it. So I was sitting there at my desk, age of nine, I think, eight or nine, and um, eight, I can remember it now because I can remember the classroom. Eight. And all of a sudden, instead of coming up with the answers to his test, I discovered that I could wiggle my ears. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure whether you can see this, but t- tell me if you can see this. Watching carefully now. <laughs> what do you think of that? And I, I left that... I left that inspector test on cloud nine. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Completely changed my life. (laughs) And it has a use. Occasionally, just occasionally, I can wiggle my ears enough to pull my glasses back up my nose. (laughs) And it's also incredibly useful for showing your grandchildren how clever you are. It's a, it's a magnificent sermon illustration, obviously. <laughs> the second thing, that's trivial, the second thing is profound. I was at about the same age. We, we had an hour on the bus to and from school when I was young. And I can remember being um, at a bus stop outside the school on my own. I must have had to stay back. I probably was in trouble for wiggling my ears during class and I was held back on detention. I don't remember why, but I was alone and it was a grey, wintry sort of Sydney afternoon. Starting to get a bit dark. I can picture it quite clearly. And I suddenly discovered, I suddenly discovered that I could speak words that I did not understand. Now, another 10 or something years later, I, would, I understood that that was, I believe, I'm sure of it, an experience of speaking in tongues that the New Testament talks about quite frequently. At the time, though, I didn't know it was prayer because I had never heard anybody other than the minister in our church pray. We said grace at home around our dinner but I didn't regard that as prayer because it was, it was the aboutry, you know, for what we're about to receive. <laughs> and it's the only time we ever prayed at home, and it, I didn't think of it as a prayer. It was just the aboutry. What The first time I heard somebody other than the minister in our church, I went to a, quite a formal church, a congregational church, and the minister wore black academic robes, and I never understood anything that... They said it was unintelligible to me. It was very academic and liberal, I guess. But I went to church all the time. I never stopped going to church, even though I didn't understand it. The first time I heard somebody other than the minister pray was when I was 17. And I was quite horrified. I just thought it was just wrong. And so I I did not know that these words were prayer. What I did know was that it was it was amazing. It was it somehow connected me to something bigger than myself. It's a bit hard to be sure what you remember at the age of twelve. 
And this, this came and went from my experience gradually for some time. Sometimes I'd remember about it and sometimes not, you know. And years later, as I've already said, I understood what that was and it became a very important part of my life in God. Why I mention it this morning, I've got a particular reason for telling the story. Recently, um, we had a, a good series that Pastor David brought us about baptism prior to the baptism we had over there. Aren't baptism services fantastic? They are just electric, aren't they? They're the most wonderful thing. And David led us through several Sundays of talking about baptism. And he um, described baptism in water, the baptism we celebrate as a sacrament associated with salvation, as being baptism in the Holy Spirit or baptism, yeah, in the Spirit. I wrote down what David said. And then he, he said that the better way to understand the other experiences that are documented in the New Testament frequently is uh, being filled with the Spirit, a filling with the Holy Spirit. And I, I think that that's just right. I think it's so true. So can a young boy who's never responded to the gospel, doesn't understand salvation, doesn't believe that anybody can pray except for the minister, can that young person have an experience of being filled with the Spirit? Well, you'll have to make your own judgment on that. But I think yes. And what I thank God for in my own life so much is that there's a sense in which I experienced faith before I understood it. I didn't know what it was, but I experienced it before I understood it. Let me read to you a little bit of what Paul writes. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. It's from 1 Corinthians 14. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with understanding. And so I had this experience at such a young age, and it, it allowed me to see early that Christian faith is about God with us, God in us, God in us, God making his home within us. And so I would say now that the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart and the Spirit gives my heart a voice to him in silence and, and sometimes in the language of prayer. And so when your heart nudges you and says, seek his face, do that, do that. Because we, we have a, a faith that is embodied and it's not, it's not a faith that is purely doctrine in our mind. It's not a faith that is purely intellectual assent, receiving Jesus as my saviour. It's an embodied faith, isn't it? We celebrate the sacraments of communion and um, baptism. They're bodily things. They involve our physical body. And I'm grateful to Ashley for a long conversation we had recently about the need to recognise the, the physicality of our faith. And our heart, whatever that is, however you view it, it's physical in some sense. And God knocks on the door of our heart. Now, maybe you've never felt that. I, I always wonder whether, whether it's good to say this or not, but I do say it. My belief is that if you are 
if you can quieten yourself, you will experience God quickening your heart. And when that happens, to you, O my heart, he has said, seek my face. When, when God quickens you inside, seek his face. Don't, don't ignore it. Don't say, I'll put that on tomorrow's to-do list because I'm enjoying this movie too much right now. God knocks on your door sometimes at inconvenient moments because he wants your attention. If you leave it, if you say, oh, not right now, I'm busy, you might try and open the door in a few hours and find that it's not that God's gone, but that to you, oh, my heart, he has said. That's not happening right then. When God, when God calls you, run to him. Where does it say in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 3, today if you hear his voice, today with a capital T, if you hear his voice today, don't turn away, today. And, and so this psalm is so beautiful to me because it describes the way God is with us and beckons us and calls us and desires a communion with us. Let's move on to the last. I think we're nearly at the end. I've skipped big bits, as I said, but I think that the bits that I haven't read with you are some, to some measure explained in the bits that we have read together. I remain confident of this, verse 13. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Matt, had a, Matt led us in a, ser, a, a ser, sermon about praise and worship. I can't remember, Matt, what the psalm was anymore, but it was might have been the very first one, I think. Psalm 1? Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying you're sure? I'll, I'll tell you the quote then you'll know this is the quote he encourages towards quote whole self praise is that right and he said let our bodies express our worship does that sound like Psalm 1 Matt sure sure it was one of the psalms and I remember it well because we had uh, a baptism in the evening that Sunday and after that sermon that Matt gave us, it seemed to me that the praise and worship, the, the, the songs at the end of the service were really strong and we were praising God with our bodies. And that's a bit like what I've just been saying about the heart. In this last, second last verse, David says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, you might think that that is just saying, God will help me before I die. It sort of sounds like that, which I think it's a mediocre reading of that verse. It's true, God will help us before we die, but it, it sounds a bit like the old um, the, the, the widow in the, in the story of the prophet, was it, um, oh, I can't remember which of the two prophets it was, Elijah or Elisha, and the woman says, I'm going to finish this and then I'll die. It sounds a bit like that. I think there's so much more in that. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living is us. It's blood and flesh. It's messy and it's complicated and it's the life that Jesus chose to join us in. Don't forget that. Jesus chose to be flesh and blood. He was flesh and blood. 
He was just like us by choice. And so the land of the living is, is this experience of life with its joys and its trials, with its utterly ordinary things like head colds and terrible things like surgery and awful and yet beautiful, wonderful, embodied Christian life, the land of the living. I remain confident. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, in my physical life. Old, um, well, maybe Dorothea of Gaza again, but the, the monastics of centuries gone past often fell into a, a way of thinking that the, the, the way to find God, the way to be saved was to separate yourself as utterly as you could from everything human. So we'll wake up at 4 a.m. and we'll, we'll pray nine times throughout the day and we'll go to bed at about 10 p.m. so that we only get four hours of sleep and we'll eat horrible food and we'll wear prickly garments. They, some of them used to whip themselves. You probably know all this sort of thing and live a life that's devoid of comfort. Live, sleep on a wooden plank without a pillow. Don't, you know, on and on it goes. Asceticism, the idea that there's something fundamentally wrong with humanity and if you want to be near God, you've really got to shrug off every last scrap of humanity. That's almost the opposite of what Jesus did, isn't it? Jesus took on every last scrap of humanity. So that, that idea that, that real spirituality is to leave the human condition as far behind you as you can is just wrong, I think. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, in my body, in my experience with you. How can I love God other than by loving the people who are the children of God? There is no God that I can see and hug. All I have is you. Yeah. And so the land of the living is a joyful and wonderful idea. We will see God with us physically in our bodies. Let's be humans full of the joy of God to share, following Christ. If you follow him, then follow his example and embrace your humanity. You are made by God. We get this wrong idea. I think, oh, I was immensely refreshed by David's sermon on Easter Sunday where he reminded us that resurrection is physical. I hadn't thought about that for such a long time. The resurrected body is physical. This is what God made to be close to him, to be filled with his spirit, to enjoy deep relationship. The last verse. Matt, you might want to bring the musicians back up about now. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. I want to, in closing, just read to you how many, four more moments from the book of Psalms where we read, wait. Discovering a heart relationship with God by waiting for him is such a, such a key. And it's not a key, it's a call. It's God calling us to be before him. I'm just going to read these and let them sit in your heart for a moment. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Psalm 38, Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord, my God. Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul in silence waits. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Amen.